0: Welcome to Bedside Reading, the podcast where each episode I interview somebody about a book, a novel, a poetry collection, a memoir or biography, not traditional medical textbooks, and we explore the themes within which help make us better healthcare professionals. It's a bit like accidental CPD. Take us for a walk or a run, snuggle up with a cup of tea on the sofa, maybe with a lap full of kittens. Listen on your way to work and add some immersive CPD, as well as getting some ideas for you to read pile. Please let me know if you're enjoying the podcast. Rate us, review us. This really helps the algorithms of podcasting to suggest us to other people who haven't found us yet. Find us on Twitter, at Bedside Podcast, on Instagram, at Bedside Reading Podcast. And if there's a book you're desperate to come on the show to discuss, please do get in touch on Twitter, Insta, or by emailing bedsidereadingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Tara George, a GP, medical educator, and compulsive reader and book buyer. This is Bedside Reading. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to season six of Bedside Reading. And I've got a cracking episode today to launch series six with. I'm delighted to be talking to John Quinn, retired endocrinologist, writer, not a comedian. He is somebody I was honoured to meet at DotMD in Galway back in 2022, And his book, Medicine Man, is funny, wise, compassionate, insightful, a really, really good read. And I have so enjoyed meeting John to talk to him about so many different things. I really hope you're going to enjoy our conversation. John, welcome to Bedside Reading.
1: Hi, Tara. Great to see you.
0: So, um... Welcome. And it's lovely to welcome um, a doctor writer, but I think a slightly unusual doctor writer in that you are a physician um, and a writer. Um, and we were talking before we started recording about how many memoirs there are by surgeons, by forensic pathologists, by GPs. Um, but I suspect that actually you might be the only endocrinologist who was written in this way.
1: Well, as you say, as far as as far as I'm aware, there's not that many physicians. Um, the the other physician that I know of, who's a fantastic uh, fiction writer, is Austin Duffy over in uh, in, in Dublin. That obviously, in talk, talking here in the UK, there are a few in the states, of course, but um, uh, physicians. They they do all that chin stroking. So it's not particularly cinematic. It's not like being a surgeon. It's not that gung-ho. It's not forensic pathology with a lot of crime. So I can see why publishers might be reticent to take on stories of people stroking their chins for 30 years. But anyway, I thought that was the challenge.
0: Um, And your book, um, your first book, um, which is um, Doctor Quinn, Medicine Man, is a fabulous, fabulous read. And um, I've sort of said, okay, so you're a writer and endocrinologist. Do you want to introduce yourself properly so that my listeners really know who I'm talking to today?
1: Sure. Um, so, as people will tell from my accent, I'm, I'm Scottish. I trained at Glasgow University. The first half of the book is my years as a trainee. And then the second half of the book is my uh, consultant experience from 1994 to 2016. Around about uh, the turn of the century, I started to get published in uh, art magazines, art review, and then wrote for a few more frees. And since retiring, I've tried to do a bit more and now do a weekly book review for one of the Scottish uh, newspapers. So, uh, and and very much enjoy writing. Very much enjoyed my career in medicine, as well.
0: And I'm hoping that might be something that we come on and talk about today. Actually, is that idea of having more than one career? And I think within medicine, we recognise we frequently end up doing more than one job, or do. You know, a bit of writing along alongside, or perhaps a bit of medical writing, but actually, you know, you've had two quite different strands of what you've done, and um, because you know your book reviews and particularly your art writing um, has not a huge amount of crossover with medicine. Though, of course, you know we know, and um, art and books make everybody a better healthcare professional. But I'm I'm really interested to think about that moving from clinical doctoring to something else and, and taking on almost a, a, second, a second career in retirement?
1: I mean, I think I, I, I find that uh, concept really fascinating. And I've known a couple of doctors down through the years who've um, made very complicated and difficult career choices that way. I, I think there are a number of doctors who have real skills as musicians or sportsmen and and um, you know what do you do if you are a doctor in your 20s and you're fantastic at a sport or fantastic at playing a musical instrument very very difficult. Um, just going back to Austin Duffy he's one of the very few people who I know who are combined combining actively combining a career as a consultant. And as a a, a public, published novelist, that's extremely rare. Um, in my own case, um, as we talked about just just before we we started taping, um, you know, money you have to admit money does come in come into this. If um, uh, someone says to you in your early thirties, um, you've got a choice between being a consultant or a full full time GP. Or, or being a, a, a novelist. Um, the novelist thing sounds really glamorous and whatnot, but you just have to look at um, percentages on sales and things like that to realise that to earn a consultant's salary in novels, you need to be J.K. Rowling or William Boyd or someone like that. And there's only a handful of people like that. So, I mean, I knew that um, when I was beginning and i i think like a lot of people you just have to sort of say well at the end of the day what you're gonna to have to do is work <laughs> get to a certain point and then when you think okay i think i can possibly afford to do this um now of course real artists my wife and i were chatting about this the other day that you know what is a real artist um may say, oh, no, you, you should go and live in the garret and all of that. But that's very, very, very tricky. And, I mean, I, as, as I say, I've, I've known through when I was in the deanery some young doctors who would come up and say, look, I've got a, I've got a record deal or whatnot, and it's very, very tricky to know how to advise them. But generally, uh, some of the people who I know who have been very successful at doing that um, – Go down the route of six months doing something and then six months. To, I mean, I knew a guy who was a carpenter for six months and then he would do locums for six months. Um, there's Gavin, of course, Gavin, um, uh, Gavin Francis, who's does uh, GP for a bit and then he does writing for a bit. Um, but there's no, there's no denying that as a choice, it's quite tricky to do. <laughs>
0: And I think it's interesting you sort of mentioning in your role in the deanery, because that's something um that I really loved in your book. You know, I'm a training programme director for general practice and I recognized um some of the anecdotes and, and some of the tensions. But I think that again is quite interesting when you have somebody who approaches you. I and mean, I've had a, a phenomenal um GP registrar relatively recently who's just had a year out um to play international sport. And actually it it's been very interesting in terms of The support. And I suppose stepping on and off is a bit more possible now, perhaps, than it historically was. But I think there have still been people who've been quite reluctant to support that and have sort of come up with things like, oh, well, how committed even are you to medicine? And I kind of think, actually, if you have the opportunity to represent your country in a sport um, and you can afford to take the time to do that, for goodness sake, why not encourage it? Because actually, to me, it feels like regrets are the worst thing that you can have and i feel like i've been you know i hope really supportive of this person who's now back in training and doing brilliantly and um, but i i do sort of think you know you look at perhaps you know sports people and um, you know my husband is very much into welsh rugby and there's you know all sorts of sort of famous rugby players who were also doctors and presumably took time out of their careers and um, but i think there is still a redu- reluctance at deanery level because i think it still sometimes sees people as sort of sausages that needs to go through this sausage processing process
1: yeah, and as you say, um, you know there are some. Roger Bannister, for example, was a you know a neurologist who. But I mean, one one of the ironies of the situation just because uh, I I think just now um, postgraduate education uh, does t- try to support this. Now it didn't. It really didn't try to support this back in the early eighties. But you know then it was very much, you know, you've got to commit to medicine, that's it. And uh, so one, one of the ironies is that although it's supported now, we've got staffing issues that are really, you know, <laughs> back in the 80s, there wasn't really staffing issues. In fact, there was loads of people going for the same job. Whereas now, um, yeah, people are like, yes, we'd like to support you, but unfortunately, we just don't have the staffing. So if that's, a, that's a sad irony about, um, you know, the current situation. But I think in general, think, things are better now, for sure.
0: Mm. Um, do you think we could hear a little bit from the beginning of the book um, so that listeners have a bit of a sense of what, what your book's all about?
1: Delighted to. So um, this is how the book begins. Yeah. Um, And it's a section entitled Scotland, 1983 to 1992. And this, uh, so chapter one, uh, Comedian. He speaks softly to me with a gentle Dublin brogue. His lower lip is stained with a white smudge of aludrox antacid that he takes for his chronic indigestion. He sits facing me in his neat office lined with leather-bound journals, and the many PhDs he's supervised. I know that this man is the president of the British Society of Gastroenterology. And when I hear him tell me, with a calm insistence you might imagine he has when inserting a colonoscope, that I'm not a fucking comedian, I near shit myself. You do not want to be fecally incontinent in the office of the country's top gastroenterologist. He has to put up with enough crap as it is. The year is 1984 and I've been qualified to practice for just over 18 months. I'm working on the south side of Glasgow where nobody seems to have 10 fingers. The old boys that I look after have worked all their lives on the shipyards in the days when health and safety measures were to understate the case, secondary to production. Two hours before the Irishman summoned me, he had sat with the other physicians watching as I presented a case at the Grand Round in the main hall. Grand rounds happen all over the country, usually weekly, and are a key educational opportunity for the medical staff. Rare conditions are sometimes presented, often in a teasing manner, with clues dropped here and there before, voila, like a music magician producing the card you just thought of, the diagnosis is revealed, and the case and its implications discussed. Here's the punchline to my case. After the requisite details of the presenting complaint, the clinical findings on examination, the list of investigations, I reveal that we think the patient has an amoebic abscess. I then say more about amoebiasis that I've gleaned from the Oxford textbook of medicine, the big blue two-volume Bible I owned in those pre-internet days. One detail about amoebic abscesses fascinates me. I learn that the pus looks like anchovy sauce. Pathologists must have been a hungry lot in those far-off days when medical conditions were first described. You can imagine them salivating as they hacked away at cadavers on those beautifully carved dissection tables in Bologna or wherever. See those they are teaching, tears of them in training, looking down at the carnage below, all of them thinking about their next meal. Back in 1984, I'd never tasted anchovy sauce. I'd never tasted an anchovy. This is Glasgow, you understand, before the famed... Garden festival before it became miles better. But in the days leading up to my talk, I knew what I would do in order to make my presentation memorable. I'd head to the supermarket and buy some anchovy sauce, that and a loaf. And at the highlight of my talk, I took out the bread, whisked out the bottle of sauce, and upended it so that the audience could watch the grey, briny muck slowly ooze over a fresh white slice. The smell was not good, but the stunt worked. I got a big laugh. The talk finished. Half an hour later, I'm in the mess, sipping a coffee, inwardly ecstatic at the hilarity I'd caused with my amoebic abscess success I'm bleeped about an hour after my presentation head to the phone. That soft Irish voice. Could you come to my office now, please? Everybody knew him as Jerry. Everybody knew that Jerry's uncle or his great uncle was with Scott at the Antarctic. He leans back in his leather chair. That was brilliant. This is how he starts as I sit across from him in his office. He goes on, You paced that well, you got the main facts across, and you got a lot of laughs. He pauses and I thank him for his compliment, and then he says, There's only one problem, though. A longer pause. I wait, and he leans forward and glowers. His tone is urgent, insistent. You're not a fucking comedian. So that's how my career uh, started.
0: It, oh, I I love that. I, I just think the the, the storytelling, um, you know, within there is is just so brilliant. And I think it it is, I think so apt that actually it is your desire to tell a story in a memorable way, not necessarily to look really good, but to tell a story in a memorable way to really illustrate a point that actually begins. As you say, this phase of your career, and actually has you sort of in trouble with the boss, um, for being able to tell stories in a brilliant way. And thank goodness he didn't manage to put you off.
1: He 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 was telling me the the most important lesson of my you know young life, which was that although medicine can be very very funny, as illustrated by many writers down through the years, um, House of God and. Etc. Etc. The various TV shows, Mash. Um, you you can't be a comedian as a you might find it funny and you might tell a few jokes, but you can't really be a comedian. Certainly not as a junior. He was all he was also saying is once you become a consultant, then you can become a comedian um, because he knew that. I mean, he had a tremendous reputation as a funny man. He he was one of those guys that got. Lots and lots of invites to do after-dinner speeches. And, you know, it made me think ab- about the number of doctors who have gone on to be uh, comedians. Um, I, I've, I've known a few myself who've done stand-up. Um, uh, there's the, obviously the very, very famous doctor who's been extremely successful with his book who's a comedian. Um, but then before that, there was people like Graham Chapman at Monty Python, uh, Harry Hill. Um, and I, I knew from a very early age that I wasn't a comedian, that, you know, you, you can make people laugh, but that doesn't make you a comedian. Comedian, being a comedian is extremely difficult.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's something else, actually, you know, in terms of the drivers behind writing the book because I think there are quite a lot of um, medical memoirs out there and there are those um, which I always feel slightly anxious about which are essentially people writing in a way to make everybody think that they are some kind of hero and then there are those and um, I suppose that I discussed on the pod- podcast relatively recently um, you know wonderful books um like Belly Woman um, where we actually have somebody who really is trying to tell the stories of people who otherwise would not have voices and is about as far from, I mean, I think he is a hero, but I am very aware that um, that, that Benjamin Black would, would say he is not a hero. He's just doing his job and, and trying to make the world a better place. And, and I think, you know, I, I sort of wonder about that because the whole way through the book, there is very much your voice and these are your experiences. But actually, at no point are you setting yourself up to look like some kind of hero when you're writing.
1: I don't think that... Um... I mean, I guess there are some readers who, who, who want to read that type, <laughs> type of book where, where the author is saying how wonderful they are. But, um, you know, I, th- I think the literary tradition, if you want to call it that, is, is, is always about, you know, failure and the comedy of failure and the comedy of, of, of humiliation. And, um, you know, I was always aware of that when those things happened in real life. But from my own literary taste, I thought, you know, you, you, the type of book that I wanted to read and the type of book I wanted to write was, was more along um, the, and then this happened, and oh, my God. Because, the, the, you know, that kind, that type of comic novel, um, there are various, you know, I, I'm thinking right now, I just finished a book of interviews by by uh, with William Boyd. I mean, he's one of the writers just now who's fantastic on, embarrassment and humiliation. And um you know, there's a great literary tradition of, of 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 that. And and that you know, I thought I can't compete with the likes of uh, Chekhov uh, and the various other great doctor writers, Bulgakov, but I might have a bit of fun at um trying to imagine what those guys would have been like as actual doctors. So that that, that was a kind of spur uh to get, you know, to do the book as well.
0: When did you actually decide to write it as a book?
1: I've been writing, um, as I say, since the for, since about 1996 or thereabouts, um, and starting off with reviews and, st- and, and trying to do some fiction as well. But I kind of knew that... Um, as I was getting closer to retirement, that the best way to get on the the ladder of publication, because as everyone everyone knows, it, it's extremely difficult. I mean, some people get a lot of luck, but a lot of the time you've got to get an agent and all of that. And I thought actually the best thing to do is to, you know, I, I was obviously aware that there was a, that, that there's always been an interest in. Um, medicine from the point of view of tv series and stuff like that i thought well actually probably the best way to get a, a foot on the rung is to uh whack out a, you know a memoir and the stories that are fresh in the head because that, that's the other thing you're aware of that after you retire that those stories are probably going to you're going to forget them or or whatever
0: And how long did it take from having made the decision that this could be a book um, sort of through to it actually hitting the shelves?
1: So I think it took about um, six months or so to write after I retired and then um, probably about a year or so to get an agent and a publisher. Um, And then, of course, COVID's happened. So, uh, you know, but you will every every person you you meet who's been publishing over the last two or three years will shake their head about about all that it was just one of those things that you you had to deal with um, and of course in the grand scheme of things it's having it's a, I mean, your book delayed is a minor issue in comparison to the tragedy of um, of the you know what happened with the virus
0: and you've've you've mentioned you know being a retired doctor um, and having retired, I'm I'm interested because as, you know, reading your book, um, you'd obviously, you know, had a great time and actually, you know, there was a lot of enjoyment um, in doing your work. So how did you decide that the time had come to step away from clinical medicine?
1: I, I mean, again, that comes back to that whole discussion we had earlier on about people who have talent in music and all, all of that. And I think it's extremely individual, um, I was lucky to be in a position that um, I could take early retirement and then, you know, maximize, uh, you know, to, and then become essentially a freelance writer on a, a, a daily basis. Um, and and so you need opportunity, you need the money, you need the, the support of your loved ones and all of that as well. Um, so there's a lot of things, but... Um, very, very individual. But what I would say is, I think um, in terms of my own story, is I think that the, a lesson for say doctors in their forties, not so much to do with writing and all all of that, is just to begin to think: what am I going to do when I get to sixty five and retire? Um, because I think there's a decision that some doctors, you know, they have to make. Do I keep my identity as a, a, a as a doctor? And many do, to great success. They still either practice or um, do academic work well into their 70s. They, in my view, are are extremely, extremely talented people. But the majority of us, I think, have to sort of say, well, maybe at 65 I've done my bit. And I should be thinking on what else in life, what are the other things that I should be doing that I've wanted to do? And by the age of, I would certainly say by 40, beginning to think, okay, and get those, you know, begin to think about those plans. And because as you say otherwise, you end up frustrated and, and you don't want that.
0: And I think that is something that we're perhaps still not talking enough about in terms of, you know, we talk about careers and we, you know, we hope we support our medical students to start thinking about what they want to do and then going into postgraduate training and then finding your niche. But then that sense of, and then what? And I suppose perhaps that's partly to do with the fact that, you know, the world of work was designed in a time when people worked until they were 60 or 65 and probably died when they were 70 or probably, you know, very tired and very old by the time they reach that point, and and I recognise that you know working full time clinically in the NHS, you probably are very tired and feel very old by the time you're 65. But realistically, you know our life expectancy is you know into our 80s and beyond. And actually, I think there is something there that I think is so important about making a plan for and then what, because otherwise, to you know stop dead, you know on your 65th birthday and um, no more work, and then go. So what am, I actually, what am I actually going to do with the rest of my life um, is, is a really unfortunate position for somebody to find themselves in.
1: I I, I was extremely lucky that even in my uh, 20s, when I was doing my membership, uh, my bosses at that time, one in particular, a, a mentor, who, who's in the book, who's, who's called Chris in the book, um, he, he was one of those guys that, that you meet who... As soon as an exam was out of the way, it was the next thing. Um, you know, as soon as he became a consultant, within six months he wanted to learn how to fly. Um, and I, you know that that influences that kind of attitude. You think, yeah, yeah, you should, you know, you should, you should always sort of set yourself. Okay, I mean, it sounds crazily optimistic, but you know, what's the alternative? Uh, you know, sitting with slippers and a pipe. You think, no, um, what else can we do?
0: Yeah. And oh, I think I think it is important. I think it's yeah, we, we ought to be thinking about it. Um and certainly I'm I'm in my forties and I've certainly got lots of plans of what are going to happen um at the end of my NHS career. Um I've definitely got that all planned out. Um and I think, you know, much to my husband's frustration, he was like, Do you just think maybe you'd just like to, you know, stop and chill out a bit?
1: No, no, yeah. not really. That, that's not me. There is a kind of flip side to this, which again we talked about I mean, at the start, which is that um I think there's a general awareness that doctors are those kind of people and it can be exploited by those in the, the various structures of the NHS. And so you find almost all of your colleagues end up, um, you know, they'll go for an appraisal and someone says, haven't you thought about management or haven't you thought about you know, postgraduate education or doing a bit more academic work. And so you find you find doctors end up having about five or six jobs, which were they in some, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the private medical sector, but some sort of private business. <laughs> five people would be doing those jobs, you know. So, um, and I think, and we are our own worst enemies sometimes that way by, as you say, not saying no and taking things on. And before you know it, you um, you know, you you're trying to be a manager. You're trying to do post grad t- training. You're you're doing the take. You're on call. You know, and that's why I think there is a role, even though it can sometimes be a pain. Uh, appraisal and support is very important because it is, you know, for a, for someone else to say to you, actually, I don't think you should do. it. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should, you know, drop that and do that. I think that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Could we talk a little bit about, um, you know, your experiences of um, supporting doctors um, who've been unwell? Because I, I think that comes across very powerfully. Your own experience very early on in your career with a colleague, um, which had an extremely sad ending, um, and you know how that shaped what you have ended up doing, going on through your life.
1: So, I mean, I, I, apart from medical school, I didn't get any psychiatric training and in many ways wish I had. I think, I think that um, you know, one of the advantages of, of uh, general practitioners over hospital doctors is that many of them have had a decent amount of psychiatric training. But it's very apparent that there are you know, real um, issues with mental health amongst doctors. And um, as you were saying, very early on in my career, one of my uh, junior colleagues uh, killed themselves. And um, that then made me a lot, more, well, it made me aware that support systems back in the early 80s were were woeful, absolutely, absolutely woeful. Um. And that the deanery set up in the UK has definitely, I think, improved that. Uh, Also, with society, there's a lot more discussion around mental health, how to deal with it, um, and suicide as well. Um, So the discussions around that are a good thing. But it's taken quite a long time to get to that point. And, and, you know, the conversation... I thought it's not over. There's still a lot more work can be done. I mean, I'm very much of the view that um, psychiatric services in the UK have been uh, allowed to atrophy by the political setup, and um, I, I find that you know quite a shameful. Uh, I mean, I've, I've often thought. I remember. Um, I remember one time I was in London and saw a guy. At, it was a main intersection in London near Stockwell or thereabouts. And there was a guy in the middle of this crossroads in a, a supermarket trolley. He'd be in his 50s, so it wasn't a kid mucking around. It was a man who was clearly acutely psychotic. And, of course, the traffic's just just going round him. Uh, and I thought if this guy was clutching his chest, there'd be talk of door to needle time and, and all of that because cardiology is sexy and cardiologists are cool, as I talk about in my book, whereas psychiatry is not cool. And um, as I say, it doesn't seem to be supported at the higher political levels. So um, yeah, it's it's an issue that I do feel a bit passionate about that we should do a lot more um, and
0: I think you know your reflections on on your colleague. There's that sense through which I I think we almost still have. I think we've got a lot better at it. Um, and I think there are some phenomenal services out there. Um, you know, and the work, for instance, that Practitioner Health have done is is fantastic in England, um, at least. But I think there there is that sense where it's blindingly obvious to you and so many of your junior colleagues that this person is really really unwell and shouldn't be at work um and there's that real sense of oh well let's just see what happens let's just see what happens and um, as it goes along and i think that probably even if we are better at talking about it there is that real tension that i think people aren't talking loudly enough about is that we want people to be well we want people to take time off when they are not well but there is that moment when you recognize that somebody isn't well enough to be at work or somebody recognises themselves that they're not well enough to be at work, that tiny little secret sinking bit of your heart that goes, oh God, and now I'm going to have to do your job and my job. And realizing that I think within so many other workplaces that are outside medicine, somebody else's work just it just doesn't get done for a bit and that's fine and it can be redistributed. But actually, you know, when you are, you know, one of two SHOs on call for the entire hospital, if one of them isn't there, that has a really negative direct impact on the person that's left carrying the workload.
1: Well, I, I remember as a house officer, um, one time the guy was on a one and two with a guy and he just didn't he didn't come in. And, you know, my boss has just said, well, you'll just have to do his job. And so you're on a one and one for about, you know, how how long can you do a one and one for? Um, uh you know, in, 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 in a a country that's not at war, <laughs> so yeah, I mean staffing levels are are the main issue just now. That the the impact on on all these good things you want to do, supporting people with talent to go away to the Olympics or whatnot, supporting people who are unwell. In an ideal world, you would. I mean, at least now there is the desire to do that. Back in the early eighties. There really was no desire to do that at all, and it was uh, the there was not not only was it a more uh, sexist environment. We know this. I'm not saying any anything controversial there. The number of women surgeons back in the 80s and all that. It was a more homophobic environment. Um, it was a more racist environment. Uh, you know, all, all in all, it it wasn't that great. And and one of the things. Uh, was this whole macho notion that you cannot be, you know, not only can you not be unwell, but don't even think about doing another job, and and I, I still, I still think there are some of the older consultants. I hope, <laughs> I, I'm hope I'm I guessing they're they're maybe not on, on into podcasts, but I might be wrong. Some of the older consultants I, I know still sort of stroll around in their. 80s as if the world owes them like you know you do this and you do that and you know they, they still imagine they've got a retinue of, of people they can go you do this you do, and you think no guys drop it you know um you're living in a different world now and um it's not like that anymore
0: no no oh john i've so enjoyed talking to you now before we finish would you like to um, say a few words about your new book because that's one that i'm really excited to read so could you tell us a little bit about that
1: so, um, because I was writing for art magazines for quite some time now, um, I it came to my attention that that many video artists were very interested in medical uh, health care and in stigma in particular. And so they were making artwork about neurological conditions, stroke, my, um, myotonia dystrophica, um, gastroenterological conditions as well. And so I thought I'd try and write a book about various video artists and how their work impacts on medicine and how medics can learn from them. And then that extended out a bit into social media um, because many doctors of my generation are extremely sceptical about social media and... and um, criticize it all the time and say it's awful and whatnot. But in fact if you, I think there's a, there could be a role for um, video platforms in terms of education. If you go on, of course TikTok's full of a lot of nonsense but if if you type in TikTok uh, stoma care or whatnot you'll get someone who's telling you about uh, pumps and type 1 diabetes. You'll get a patient who's talking to you um acromegaly you you name it um people who are on dialysis and one of the things that grabbed me was the whole when you're teaching if you're on the ward yes there'll be MIs and people with CVAs and whatnot but you're not going to get patients with Cushing syndrome on the ward and the whole business of getting doctors to a certain level of competency in various rare conditions. Yeah, you can go and read it in a book. But if you go on TikTok for just like 15 minutes, you can come across 10 patients telling you their direct story. And I thought, that's quite exciting. Um, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't, you know, I think we're in the foothills of academic study of this, uh, whether it will be validated as a, a proper teaching tool. But I thought that this book, which is, as I say, is called Video, would be a kind of primer uh, introduction to certain videos, but also hopefully a stimulus for young academics to go and do some more formal work.
0: Well, I'm thoroughly looking forward to I'm thoroughly looking forward to reading that because certainly I I think I'm collecting um, a variety of um, sources and particularly um, good TikTok and Instagram um, content producers um, for you know, supporting patients. Um, So, um, yeah, I'm really, really excited to read that. So, John, thank you so much for coming to talk to me um, today. I have really, really enjoyed talking to you.
1: It's a pleasure, Tara. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Bedside Reading. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please do rate and review us. Why not follow us on Twitter, at Bedside Podcast. If there's a book you're desperate to discuss, please message. I'd love to have you on to chat about it. Bedside Reading is hosted and produced by Tara George and edited by Louis G.